Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine and sponsored by Steer. Broadcasting today from Agreco Studios. Agreco, powering the Permian. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We are at the Deloitte Energy Conference uh, live here in Houston and conducting some interviews with some of the speakers uh, as well as some of the executives that were uh, speaking at the conference today. But first, I want to talk to you about our latest issue of Shale Magazine, in which our cover is Sarah Ortwine, who is the president of XTO Energy, of course, a company, an energy company that's based in beautiful Houston, Texas. This is definitely an issue that you don't want to miss. And we were actually pretty happy and proud to have her on the cover um, as there's just not a lot of women executives uh, in the energy sector. And so we were able to tell her story, talk about the great company XTO, as well as um, just kind of introducing uh, our listenership and our fan base to XTO, the energy company. So be sure to go to shale, that's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com. Again, that's shellmag.com to read the story in its entirety. Before we bring on David Blackman, the editor of Shell Magazine, to talk oil, gas, and of course, some politics, I want to tell you about the latest thing that's happening in 2019 within the Oil Patch Radio Show. We are so excited to have a partner coming on board, the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, John Tatera, and his team will be coming into studio and fielding any questions that come in live, via Facebook and or via email to our office wanting to discuss anything you want to know about oil and gas. And I mean anything. So you could send in questions on the environment, global warming, seismicity, air quality, water, you name it. But what we definitely want is your involvement. So feel free to send us your questions beforehand to radio at shellmag.com. Again, that's radio at S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com or go to our Facebook page and send us a message. As we're doing it live, we'll be making these announcements and you can send us your question right then and there or call in as well. This will begin in January 2019, but get your questions in early. I highly encourage you to get informed, get involved, and get engaged. But now it's time for me to welcome the editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to the show this week. Hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas. Isn't it? It's amazing. It's so nice and sunny finally. And the weather, uh, you know, this cool snap that's come in is just so awesome. It's nice. It really, it really was. Well, and you know, it, it's kind of interesting with with the uh, gas prices, natural gas prices to kind of look and see uh, the weather and the coldness, you know, how yeah. does that look? So let's get started with one of the areas that I want to focus on is um, obviously oil prices have been dropping um, and, uh, you know, on our energy minutes that uh, Commissioner Ryan Sitton produces, we are on a 13-day straight uh, 
low price mark. And so yeah. what does this mean? Because we've been going up and it seems like we've been stable for a while and all of a sudden it's dropping. Uh, so let's talk about oil first and we'll get into natural gas. What's causing this? Well, it, it's interesting. Yeah, we, we had gone up to uh, you know, WTI, got over $76 on October 3rd. And, and since then, it's been almost a straight line progression down. And Tuesday of this past week, it dropped $5 in one day. And, and there's several big factors in that. The, the first, the biggest factor is this. When, when the administration implemented, re-implemented all these sanctions on Iran, which cover a, a broad myriad of economic issues uh, other than oil and gas, but it also, you know, there were sanctions on their crude oil exports. What Saudi Arabia and Russian had not anticipated was that the administration would grant a waiver uh, to China and India, which are two of Iran's biggest crude oil customers. And so they granted a waiver from these sanctions to those two countries. Well, the three months prior to that, Saudi Arabia and Russia had been pouring additional crude oil onto the market because they thought there was going to be a big void uh, in, in oil supply when these sanctions went into full effect not anticipating those waivers. And so Saudi Arabia and Russia essentially oversupplied the market from July through September <laughs> by about a million barrels a day. And so what the result has been all these big inventory builds and overproduction in the United States has added to it. Uh, you know, we had this huge estimate from the uh, Energy Information Administration that uh, Production had jumped 400,000 barrels a day in the United States in one week, which is obviously not true, not accurate, and will be revised later. But, you know, you had that come in at the same time. And so all that combined, along with Goldman Sachs uh, liquidating all of its long positions on oil, and uh, boom, in one day we go down $5, uh, 7% drop in one day, and we've we've gone down 25% since October 3rd. And uh so just, you know, uh, a combination of factors. I, I, I still think, I still believe we're going to, the price is going to go up from here uh, because Saudi Arabia and Russia obviously are going to stop oversupplying the market. And, uh, but, you know, it, it's, it was a really, really bad few days. Well, so do you think the worst is over pertaining to the oil prices and everybody's kind of leveled out? It's leveled out now yeah. and we should start seeing it coming back pretty soon. I do. I do. Because all these these loan positions have now been liquidated. and It wasn't just Goldman Sachs. It was a lot of institutional investors. And, and so that's going to take pressure off. And Russia and Saudi Arabia and all the other OPEC countries are going to agree to to a new set of restrictions on exports. And uh, then you're going to start seeing pressure, upwards pressure on the price again. Very slow upwards pressure. It's not going to jump 10 or $20. It's not going to go to $100 a barrel. But you know, I just think we'll see a resumption of that upward pressure on the price. Let's switch gears, David, and talk a little bit about natural gas, um, because it has jumped. Um, it jumped more than $1 MCF this week. And now we're also moving into the colder weather, as I studied earlier. So do you think, uh, how long do you think the higher prices are going to last? It's going to last all the way through the winter time, or is this just yeah. something it will? You think? I, I do. I think so. I think it's, uh, you know, it's not going to stay. It, it got up to like 480 one day this past week, you know, early in the week. And it, I don't think it's going to stay there, but I do think it could stay over $4 or near $4 uh, throughout the duration of the winter for a couple of reasons. First, uh, storage levels are very low. 
15% below not just the five-year average, which is what everyone looks like, but 15% below the range of the last five years. So, I mean, this is the lowest storage levels in 13 years headed into the winter. Two months ago, uh, all the meteorologists were predicting a, a fairly warm winter, and now some of them are beginning to predict a very cold winter instead. And uh, so if we have, you know, a really cold winter, uh, a lot of prolonged uh, cold snaps along, particularly in the Northeast and the Midwest, um, you're going to see gas prices, you know, probably get close to $5 again before the winter's over. Um, ultimately, in the longer run, though, we, we just have so much supply. Eventually, uh, people will start, to, the producers will start taking advantage of these higher prices, drilling more wells and, uh, you know, drill the right price right back down to $3 at some point. But, uh, you know, throughout the rest of this winter, I think we can see pretty robust prices. Well, interesting. Now, the Energy Information Administration is now estimating that the Permian Basin will be producing 3.7 million barrels of oil per day in November. So how is this production out there continuing to rise despite the fact that they have these pipeline constraints going on uh, that exist right now? You know, that's a that's a really good question. Uh, and, and, and I think the, the, the basic answer is that that the oil industry is very, very creative at uh, finding solutions to problems. and uh, They have been. I have to agree with yeah. you on that. It's going to hold them amazing. down. You know, it was, it's been six weeks ago that, uh, you know, we had the, uh, the, the announcement by EIA that, uh, that the Permian takeaway capacity is, had essentially released, reached its limits. And since that time, they, their projections is, is that we, we've added over 100,000 barrels a day to production in the Permian Basin. So it is kind of hard to see how that's all happening. But, you know, you just have increased transportation of the crude oil on, on rail and in trucks. And, you know, they're finding, uh, you know, uh, additional storage uh, to, to just store crude oil in. And so you can continue to produce it as long as you can keep moving it. Uh, eventually, we'll reach the limits of those alternatives and and the increases will slow down. But uh, at least over the past couple of months, these producers have been, you know, finding, finding alternatives. And, and, you know, the other thing is any even when it does finally, you know, the growth really slows down, it's not going to slow down for that long because we're going to start having additional pipeline capacity come online during the first half of next year. So while while it is a serious issue, it's a very temporary issue. And within two years, because there's so many different pipelines being built right now, it, by the end of 2020, we're going to have a major surplus of pipeline capacity coming out of the Permian Basin. And uh, that's when you're going to see transportation rates go through the floor for a lot of these companies. So, you know, it's it's a problem, but it's a temporary one. I couldn't agree with you more. David, that's all the time we have for this week. Look forward to having you back on next week, which I'm sure we'll have more interesting topics on oil, gas, and of course, the geopolitical scene. Great. I'll look forward to it. And with that, we do have to take a quick break. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back.
Agreco has been powering the Permian Basin for over 10 years, supporting Permian producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. Agreco supports power systems as small as a single 200 kilowatt to as large as a 50 megawatt power plant. So when your utility power is delayed, call on Agreco to engineer a diesel, natural gas, or battery solution to fit your needs. We have immediate availability right here in the Permian Basin. Call 1-800-AGRECO or online agreco.com. The vision of the Women's Energy Network is to be the premier organization that educates, attracts, retains, and develops professional women working across the value chain. Also known as WEN, our mission is to develop programs that provide networking opportunities and foster career and leadership development of women who work in the energy industry. Thousands of women are breaking ground in energy industry careers every year, and 4,000 of them are already members of the Women's Energy Network across our 14 chapters. Members receive exclusive access to mentoring, job boards, group discussions, member-only networking events, expert speaking engagements, and more. Join today by visiting womensenergynetwork.org slash Houston or call 1-855-390-0650. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bilotto. And at the Deloitte conference, I was able to catch up with a panel from Deloitte on the topic of LNG. So let's get into that interview now. We are actually at the Deloitte Energy Conference in which we're being joined by a couple of partners and leaders that are working in Deloitte. And I'd like to give them a moment to introduce themselves and then we'll get into the topic of LNG. Please introduce yourself. Uh, my name's uh, Rajiv Chopra. I'm the global industry leader for energy resources and industrials at Deloitte. Bernadette Culladane. I'm based in Perth in Australia, and I'm the national oil and gas leader for Deloitte Australia. My name's Andrew Slaughter. I'm the executive director of the Research and Insights Group for the United States Energy Resources and Industrials Practice. And I'm based here in Houston. Well, welcome to the show. It is so nice to have all of you join us. And uh, today we're here to talk about LNG. And it, it, it's a very large topic. You guys are covering different areas. So I want to get started with some topics. Each one of you all have your own specific area. So we're going to try to address LNG from a big picture and then kind of what's happening in each area where you guys are operating or working in. But before we get started, I just kind of want to ask, so you're from Australia. How long is, uh, it's a, a pretty long, <laughs> Tripped airplane, right? But oh, yeah. I think, is it 14 hours? Oh, a bit longer than that. A little so bit longer. Over that. 24 hours. And I think my colleagues, Rajiv and Andrew, have both been there and would um, attest it is a long flight. Andrew, are you living here in Houston? I live in Houston. I've been based in Houston for close to 20 years now. Okay. So, so you can tell I'm in East Texan by <laughs> origin. And how about yourself? So I'm based in London, okay. but uh, traveling all around the world. So. Very, very nice. Well, welcome to uh, In the Oil Patch Radio Show. So let's get started with uh, the topic of LNG. First of all, I want to start with the outlook. Um, LNG has been fairly new coming into oil and gas, so has Shell Play in the last you know, five, six, seven years. But within the LNG market, tell me a little bit about uh, the outlook and the projection that you guys see three to five years out. 
Let me start because I did come the farthest and I came actually for the purpose of talking about LNG and that's that's really why I'm here and uh, and um, have been enjoying the opportunity to bounce off ideas um, with my colleagues here as well as others in the conference. But um, in terms of the, the outlook, so being based in Australia, we have for the last, actually it's been quite a number of decades, been a major LNG producer. We have um, the Northwest Shelf, which was a big joint venture up in the northwest of Australia that has been producing for over 30 years, reliably producing. We're fairly new coming into this market in yeah, North America. I think from, a, from an Australian perspective, we've been in the game for 30 years. Um, but most recently, we have um, now built out an industry which is um, bi-coastal and uh, now the world's largest LNG producer. In fact, as of perhaps the month of November, we will be, in fact, surpassing Qatar as the largest LNG producer in the world. We have that crown down in Australia now. Nice. So that's, that's a really big deal. Um, but it's not just about um, Australia, but you know, it's a, it, the industry over the last 10 years has really evolved. It has globalized. LNG is now a commodity product um, or becoming um, commoditized. And we're seeing a lot of different trends that have emerged. But it's really exciting to be um, on the doorstep of Asia, like we are in Australia, because the future for LNG demand growth is very much an, uh, an Asian story. And the center of gravity is really going to be shifting from the traditional markets, which were Japan and South Korea, um, now to the future markets, which is China, Southeast Asia, and India. And those, that's really the center of gravity for, for LNG going forward. Very interesting. Anyone else want to take on that topic from specific Yes, areas? I think the, I share Bernadette's view that the demand outlook is quite strong. Uh, gas has a, very, a growing role in both serving the energy needs of growing populations in, in Asia particularly, and, and uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia. And LNG is a great way to deliver that gas. Um, so the strength of the demand outlook, even over a longer period than five years, over the next 15 to 20 years, uh, that translates into project development plans all around the world for supply, bringing new supply into the market. So I think it's, it's not just our view, but companies are really considering how to develop projects for the long term that will meet that demand, whether it's North American projects, whether it's Asian, pro Australian projects, whether it's East African, or you know, somewhere in the Middle East. There's a lot of positive, I think, um, momentum behind project development in the LNG space. Well, it's definitely growing in demand all over the world. I agree with you, Rashid. Yeah, I would say that the, the US has a large role to play in LNG going forward, just because the export from the US will increase substantially right. over, over the coming years. So that will have a big influence on the LNG markets in the next three to five years. And you know, I have to say that outside of the industry, it is starting to become a very well-known topic, a lot more uh, the community understands what's evolving. It's always been uh, a known in the oil and gas industry, but our show focuses on the everyday person. 
and they really seem to understand this, uh, the LNG and all the new stuff that are coming on that kind of help with the alternative fuels as well as using more natural gas because of the environment and stuff like that. So we're really excited you guys were talking about this subject because we don't get to talk enough. We're usually talking a lot of crude on in the Oil Patch Radio mm -hmm. show. Right. So it's nice to hear the other side and on yes. a global scale as well. So when we come back from break, I want to get into the specific areas that you guys actually work in, rather it's Asia, North America. So, but we do have to take a quick break. You're listening to End the Oil Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. Oil Field Experts is the only place you need to go to locate any part, any time for your automotive or oil field equipment needs. Specializing in hard to find oil field parts for your fleet maintenance needs, Oil Field Experts have been providing parts and accessories to keep your tools turning since 1965. From the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us to get the right part right now. Here's the number, so write it down. Oil Field Experts, 210-471-1923. Welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we're being joined by some of the uh, senior leaders in Deloitte, and we're talking on the topic of LNG. Now, Bernadette, before the break, um, we were talking about just LNG and the outlook. Um, I want to try to get into drilling down into specific areas because I think it helps us to understand on a global picture what's really happening on LNG, mm -hmm. and your specific area is Asia. Can you tell me a little bit about what's happening with LNG in the Asia market? Sure, so maybe I'll talk about the demand side of the equation a little bit, um, albeit I am from Australia and we're, we're producing country. But if I look at um, how the industry has evolved over the last uh, 30 or more years, um, it really was catalyzed by the need for energy security in the energy poor nations of Japan and South Korea. So these two countries um, developed long-term relationships with Australia and with Qatar, with Indonesia and a few other countries to, um, to secure LNG or gas for energy security. Um, and you know this was a, a very distinct, I guess, and defining feature. Now what's happening is, um, as these markets have slowed down in their growth, their population growth of Japan is actually contracting, um, LNG has become much more of a, of a global commodity, um, and now the new demand is coming from other countries and for other sectors. So it's coming from China, in particular, for industrial uses, okay. not for power generation like it was traditionally in Japan and South Korea. So it's coming into, um, to, the demand is coming from industrial uses in China as well as in heating. So, you know, different, different market, different country, different application. Um, in India, it's also going to be used for, um, I believe, uh, and Rajiv, if you want to comment yeah. on this, that'd be great. Um, for, um, for power generation, but both China and India are looking to LNG primarily to improve their air quality as they try and wean themselves off of coal and they introduce gas more into their energy mix. Yeah, and also in Asia Pacific there was a big increase in LNG following Fukushima. Yeah. That was a big defining moment yeah. for the increase in LNG imports into Japan. 
which also put LNG on the on the map, really, in Asia yeah. Pacific, in almost every country. Yeah, absolutely. What are the, the, the major suppliers for this demand going to be? Which, which countries? So 60% of LNG demand will be supplied by really three countries. Qatar, which has been the traditional leader, Australia, now the, the new leader, and the United States, so the next leader, perhaps. In what areas are they going to, is it just going to be a split, or is there a country that has access to the infrastructure and is going to be the leader in that, or is it just going to be? Well, I think diversity of supply is always going to be a feature of yeah. the um, consuming country. So I think, um, Andrew, you might want to comment about yes. portfolio approaches that these countries will Yes, I mean, I think customers are now behaving differently than they did historically. Historically, they wanted to sign very long-term contracts with one particular supply source, whether it was a company or a geographical location. Now they want choice. They want a choice of contract duration. They want choice of price reference. They want choice destination flexibility very often, uh, sometimes resale, resale rights. So they want choice. And so the market follows, will follow um, different business models, different sets of commercial terms. And so, um, whether it's a Japanese buyer or a Chinese buyer or an Indonesian buyer, they will pick and choose their portfolio of purchases according to their, you know, their portfolio demand needs. And it won't necessarily go to one country, it'll be a mix. I think they like the basket approach of, mm. of LNG purchases. That's probably a good idea. Yeah. Let's switch gears and talk about Europe. Do you want to tell me a little bit about Europe, where they are with LNG? Yeah, as Benedict was saying, LNG is really an Asia-Pacific story. In Europe, traditionally, gas has been imported from Russia and a number of other countries, and that continues. So most countries uh, which are building import terminals for LNG are really doing so for diversity of supply source, so like security of supply. Right. There are you know, one or two countries where the pipelines aren't sufficient, so they, they have built terminals and are importing LNG, uh, like uh, Spain, there's a bit in Italy, a bit in France. Uh, but it's, it's more a diverse, diversification of uh, supply sources, um, but they are not big LNG importers compared to the Asian markets of uh, Japan, China, India. We do have to take a quick break. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. Farmers and ranchers are the hardest working people on earth and deserve a side-by-side -side vehicle that works just as hard. That's why Yamaha makes the Viking an all-new Viking 6, the world's first true three and six person UTVs assembled in America. Ranked number one in drivetrain durability, Viking outworks and outclasses the competition in features, comfort, and off-road capability. For more, visit YamahaViking.com. Most dependable claim based on a 2013 Yamaha Source side-by-side -side owner study. Welcome back to In the Old Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we're being joined by some of the uh, senior leaders in Deloitte, and we're talking on the topic of LNG. Andrew, I want to uh, talk a little bit about North America. Well, actually, let's talk a lot about North America. Yes. It's, uh, 
it's booming. There's a lot of activity happening in North America. This is typically a lot of what we discuss on in the oil patch. If we're going to touch on a topic, it's North, usually North American LNG and what's happening. Yes. Give us a, a, an update on what is happening. So in North America, it's becoming entirely a story of supply to international markets, supply to global markets. We all know, of course, that the U.S. was a pioneer in LNG almost 60 years ago with shipments from Alaska to, to Asia. But the modern era of U.S. LNG exports started just two years ago, two and a half years ago, uh, when the first plant at Sabine Pass started up. Uh, shipments are rising rapidly. They're going to all the markets around the world. Um, particularly to Asia, but to essentially touching all markets, Europe, Latin America as well. And over the next uh, three to four years, we know that there are other projects that are going to be commissioned and start, and start up. So by 2020, US will have the scale, which is about equivalent to Australia and about equivalent to Qatar. So those three countries, as Bernadette said, will be the biggest players in global LNG. The difference, I think, in the US model is that there's a, a, a bigger diversity of types of supply in terms of scale, in terms of technology, uh, whether it's modular or if it's uh, integrated, and in terms of value chain integration, whether they're just uh, tolling plants, whether they go back into the supply field to purchase gas, whether they integrate forward into shipping uh, and, and, and can deliver to customer. There'll be, they offer diversity in terms of pricing terms, pricing arrangements. Uh, so it's not the traditional uh, crude oil linkage, although that's an option. And so it's going to be very interesting to see um, whether any of those models becomes preferred by customers or whether it really is a tool for customers to, to find the solution that works for them in terms of commercial terms and contract duration. And I think all of those options are available from the type of diversity of uh, supply development we're seeing in the US. So what I'm hearing from all of you all is that there's a lot to come with LNG. We need to keep our eye on it. It's merging and it's definitely uh, developing, evolving, and pretty much supplying the demand that's going out there in the world. Yeah. Thank you guys for being a guest today on In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We look forward to having you back in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you very much. We do have to take a quick break. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. The vision of the Women's Energy Network is to be the premier organization that educates, attracts, retains, and develops professional women working across the value chain. Also known as WEN, our mission is to develop programs that provide networking opportunities and foster career and leadership development of women who work in the energy industry. Thousands of women are breaking ground in energy industry careers every year, and 4,000 of them are already members of the Women's Energy Network across our 14 chapters. Members receive exclusive access to mentoring, job boards, group discussions, member-only networking events, expert speaking engagements, and more. Join today by visiting womensenergynetwork.org slash Houston or call 1-855-390-0650. The Women's Energy Network, empowering women in energy.
And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Jeff Bobeck, who is the Director of Energy Policy and Engagement for the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, better known as C2. Yes, Jeff, welcome to End the Wolf Patch Radio Show. Kim, thank you very much. Nice to be here. So we're meeting today at the Deloitte Energy Conference, which is a huge conference. They are, uh, are truly uh, very knowledgeable and also say experts in the area of oil and gas. And you were a presenter today as well. Um, and so I want to talk about what you were discussing and, of course, what your uh, organization is doing. So, so let's get started. First of all, tell me a little bit about your organization, C2ES? Certainly. Well, we're the, the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, and I would say the most important part of that title is the solutions part. So there are a lot of environmental NGOs that work on uh, how to address climate issues. Uh, we believe we, our mandate is, is, is to come up with real live, real world solutions. In other words, to work with business to understand what they can do as I say, in the real world. Well, that really does sound very soothing to my soul and probably to our listeners because I think everybody at the end of the day cares about the environment. And we, are, we should all be environmentalists. And helping companies become more efficient, more aware of things that they can do to help is uh, is a very important thing. So this is what you guys are doing, and you're a, a think tank, if you will, that kind of thinks through problems. We are a think tank, and, and we strongly believe that uh, environmental benefits and economic benefits do not have to be at odds. Uh, one of the most dangerous things that states and federal governments have done around the world uh, is try to set mandates that were unreachable. Uh, in the past, and let me give you an example. Back in the late 90s, California tried to mandate that uh, I believe 5% of all uh, vehicles sold would be electric vehicles. Well, they didn't consult, consult the consumers on that because consumers didn't want to buy those electric vehicles. So that, that failed. It wasn't the right way to get at, at the issue of reducing emissions from vehicles. Um, there had to be a better way. Now, I'm, I'm not, not here to tell you what that way was, but I think that when we hear a report like the recent IPCC study that said we've got to step up our game if we're going to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions enough to reach uh, climate targets, we have to be careful to, to think about hard mandates that may not be reachable in a real world, where, where people have to get to work, where people have to keep their homes heated, and frankly, businesses have to stay in business. True, and I think we also need to keep in mind that the United States is only one country in the world, and I think it's about bringing the world on board of trying to help other countries who are probably more, uh, they're emerging countries and they definitely have more problems with pollution than we do and trying to bring them on board too and finding solutions for them would also be very important as well at the same time. <laughs> I think part of the real world that, that we have to think about is that a lot of the world is still developing and they, sure. they do want to have lives like ours. They, they do want to be able to electrify and, uh, and so that will cause demand for energy. Now what type of energy will that be? Can it be uh, su supplied economically by renewables? In some parts of the world, yes. That'll be a positive for, uh, for the environment. But fossil fuels will be a part of the mix and just about every credible estimate says that, at least through 2050s. And with that, we do have to take a quick break. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show and we'll be right back. 
From the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us to get the right part right now. Here's the number, so write it down. Oilfield Experts, 210-471-1923. Again, that's 210-471-1923. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Jeff Bobeck, who is the Director for Energy Policy and Engagements at the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. And Jeff, um, I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about carbon capture. Tell me a little bit about, there's a lot of technology that's coming online that exists that um, helps EMPs and service companies capture carbon. Tell me a little bit about, is that the future that we need to move towards and uh, some of the technology that's existing to help in this area? Well, one thing we've learned is that renewables are very, very important uh, uh, as, a, as a greenhouse gas reducer, but we've also learned that renewables alone can't meet uh, the Paris Agreement targets. First of all, because 25% of emissions worldwide come from industrial sources like steel plants and cement plants. So there's simply no way to uh, uh, capture those emissions um, by switching to renewables. There, there is no switching okay. involved. Uh, secondly, eventually you will have to get at the, the uh, uh, emissions from power plants, even cleaner plants like, like uh, natural gas. Now luckily carbon capture uh, has, has had its hiccups along the way, but it's, it's, the technology has improved. It's improved with uh, some very steady support from the U.S. government that has stuck by it. Uh, this administration, in fact, has, has uh, been a strong supporter of carbon capture, and uh, it, it is definitely going to be an important part of the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions uh, in, the, in the next 20 years. Uh, and again, so the technology is very important, uh, but, but also uh, uh, the ability to, to control industrial emissions. And when you talk about the technology, just so um, I'm, I'm clear, what type of technology is it? Is it just basically looking at um, oil and gas, or is it also across these other different areas as well? And they're evolving too into some kind of technology that's helping those segments or areas as well. Right, well in the, in the United States, an interesting aspect of carbon capture is that uh, uh, CO2 is actually a commodity. Uh, and there are many oil companies that are will, willing to pay good money for, for CO2 that they can use to inject in, in old wells for, for, for enhanced oil recovery. So that is creating uh, a, a market for CO2, which is creating a market for uh, the, the capture technology. Uh, and so you'll, you'll see growth in that. That has an overall uh, net uh, positive effect on, on the environment. Um, it's been estimated that a barrel of oil that comes from enhanced oil recovery using CO2 is about 64% as carbon intensive as a, a barrel of oil from a, from a new uh, well. So, Interesting. And it keeps us from drilling places we haven't drilled yet, so that, that's good for the environment where we're, we're getting the most we can out of, out of uh, fields we've already opened up. Now Jeff, talk to me um, about opportunities, the entrepreneurs that are listening, because obviously this is a, a, an emerging area of 
doing the right thing by the environment and of course making a business out of it. What, sure. what do you see coming down the pike? Well, let me start with a little Washington story. You know, you may have heard there's some, some political discord in Washington these days. No, we haven't heard that, of course. Um, but there has been a lot of uh, bipartisan agreement on, on, on how to promote carbon capture. Earlier this year, Congress passed a, uh, a tax credit for carbon storage. Uh, called 45Q tax credit. That's part of the IRS code. And what it does is it, it, it pro provides a tax credit for either the storage or the beneficial use of, of CO2. So that makes uh, the financing of a potential carbon capture project much, much more uh, interesting. So at all levels, and again, coupled with this, this greater uh, market for CO2 for, for enhanced oil recovery, I think that in, in the, the coming few years, you're going to see a, a great, uh, uh, great uptick in activity among capture projects. Very interesting. And I'm sure that that will probably help a lot of uh, individuals who are not so pro oil and gas um, ease their mind that, that, that hopefully the industry is working in the right direction to be a little bit more not just efficient, but also, I think at the end of the day, they do, um, they live on the planet just like the rest of us, and they do try to do what they can do to try to help the environment and take a look at um, technologies that are evolving or ways to be more efficient and uh, take into consideration the environment. Well, one thing I'd say about carbon capture, because there is some controversy about uh, whether it promotes uh, greater use of fossil fuels, um, we're a climate organization. We strongly believe that it's a net benefit for the environment. And other groups have, have endorsed it as well. And pretty familiar names like the Audubon Society, the Nature Conservancy, are all very, very supportive of greater deployment of carbon, carbon capture as a, as a greenhouse gas and as a climate uh, initiative. And, and as, as I said earlier, there ha also happens to be a great business benefit to it. Interesting. So in closing, tell me a little bit about what you're seeing in Washington, D.C., because that's where you're located. There's a lot going on down there right now. How much uh, of what's going on at the Capitol and, of course, the White House is having to do specifically with a lot of the energy uh, discussions? Well, I'd say, you know, I, I'm an old guy, and I've seen administrations come and go in Washington. I think one of the hardest things uh, for energy policy is the whipsaw of uh, of, of change in policy where we, 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 we go hard one direction and come hard the other way. And it kind of looks like we just did that in the past administration to this one. We went from one pen swing to the other side. <laughs> and it, it seems to me from, from what I've seen, and let me go back to this 45Q uh, tax credit, uh, that uh, there, there is a way here, and, and when we see bar bipartisanship, and I mean real bipartisanship, when we see That's Democrats good. and Republicans willing to talk about these kind of things, we usually come up with better solutions. And, and in the case of this tax credit for carbon storage, there is great bipartisan support for it. We've got, uh, uh, you know, the chairman of, of the, uh, the uh, Environment Committee from Wyoming, who's, a, who's you know, a coal guy, and we've, we've got uh, one of the most liberal Democrats from Rhode Island. Both of them shake hands and talk about carbon capture all the time. And I think that's, that's really going to be the, uh, the future of energy policy, the more we can agree on things. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's nice to hear, since you're in D.C., that there is that going on, because uh, you don't hear a lot of that these days in, uh, 
in media. Jeff, thank you for coming in. Uh, please feel free to come back and give us an update when you guys have Anytime. some new policies or anything. And thank you for being a guest on In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Great. Thanks again. Well, I'd like to take a moment to thank Jeff Bobeck for being a guest on In the Oil Patch Radio Show. But now you know what time it is. It's time for trivia. Today's trivia question is, what conference did we attend in Houston, Texas? Remember to email the correct answer to radio at shellmag.com and you'll have a chance to win a $75 gift certificate to Fogo de Chao, the Brazilian steakhouse. If you are interested in keeping up with In the Oil Patch Radio Show or the latest issue of Shell Magazine, you can do that. It's free. All you have to do is go to www.shellmag.com and sign up for our free newsletter. That is going to wrap up another great show. We'll see you next week with more exciting news and insightful interviews. Until then, adios. In the Oil Patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.